When I saw what China had to do to to isolate such an enormous part of their population, my first thought was Africa. How in the world are they going to deal with this? When it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are informed and surrounded by narratives. How countries are responding, what advancements are seen, the terrible outcomes. But narratives are not simple. Stories are told from specific perspectives, using filters that might seem invisible. In the international COVID coverage, for example, there's a tendency for uplifting Global North countries in their efforts of control and solution creation, while undermining Global South countries, as places bound to be the scenario of the worst calamities, incapable of responding efficiently to the crisis, or where good COVID response numbers are something surprising, result of chance or even magic. Genetic component in which the immune systems of Thais and others in the Mekong River region are more resistant to the coronavirus? Or is it some alchemy of all these factors that has insulated this country of 70 million people? It's going to be horrible in the developing world. Parasitic worms could be protecting some Africans from the full effects of COVID 19. Coronavirus in Africa. Could poverty explain the mystery of low death rate? Narratives are yet another aspect of the COVID-19 crisis that has been shaped by colonialism. Where does these messages come from? Contextualizing, localizing is the best way when it comes to responding to public health emergencies. And that's the new narrative. And it's not only about countries. It's also about historically vulnerable populations who are the most affected by the virus and whose death has been normalized. When I write that black women have to be healed, people say, okay, it's fantastic. When I say that in our history, black voices were silenced, people say, okay, this is amazing, fantastic. But when I write about Georgie, this black man that were killed by the negligence of our healthcare system. People don't read that. Why? In this episode, we'll talk about the harm that hegemonic distorted narratives present and dive into the stories that do not get to be in the headlines. Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. This show is sponsored by AC4 the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. Hi, listeners. I'm Marika Zalat. Welcome to Episode 3 of Colonialism and COVID-19. Um, thank you for joining us again. And I hope you've been enjoying our series. Uh, we know we have been very happy with the rich conversations that we've been promoting in our podcast and also outside with people that have been listening to the, the podcast and, and discussing it. So it's been really great. 
And I'm here again with Lola Dan with me, so we can together lead us through this final episode of the three-episode series. And to start, um, maybe we could go back a little bit. Lola, would you care to make a little retrospective of what we've covered so far? Sure. So in our first episode, you may remember we talked about what colonialism is and how it relates to the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly in Zimbabwe and in Southern Africa and in the Navajo Nation in the United States. There were some remarkable similarities between both contexts. In our second episode, we tackled with the Dr. Hodan Ali of Somalia, the colonial dynamics that shaped the international humanitarian aid system and impact local responses to COVID-19. Today, our final episode is about a core element that sustains colonial structures, narratives. We're talking about stories that are told about people, communities, and nations that are ill-informed and that are centering the foreign gaze or the white gaze. These narratives are not neutral. In fact, they are harmful. Can you talk a little bit more about this idea of, you know, white gaze, foreign gaze? Yeah, absolutely. The white or Western gaze or foreign gaze, it's the idea that writing, narratives, and storytelling centers the point of view of readers who are white or from the Western world. Authors of color, such as Toni Morrison, have described it as a voice in their heads that reminds them that their writing, characters, and plot choices are going to be judged by white readers. The white gaze is especially prevalent in mainstream media and news sources, which often fail to censure the voices of affected communities. And of course, that's, that's, that has a colonial root, right? Um, since racism was created in the colonization process. Our first guest today is Bianca Santana. She's a journalist um, from Brazil. And we heard her for this episode. And she's discussing this idea of the white gaze, specifically in the Brazilian reality. I am Bianca Santana. I'm a journalist, and I'm a feminist and activist of the Black movement here in Brazil. And I am an activist at UNEAFRO in the Black Coalition of Rights. So we talked about UNEAFRO before. I think um, in the first episode, I talked a little bit about it. And it's this 12-year-old social organization from Brazil that offers prep courses for the college entrance exams to students from vulnerable backgrounds, and especially Black students in 39 different territories. But during the pandemic, they stopped classes and started offering humanitarian service to these communities that, because they are the most affected by COVID and they do not have access to healthcare. They have been offering training to regular people with professional support, and they have monitored over 400 people with symptoms. We have people taking care of people with professional support of psychologists and doctors. And it's really impressive how most part of them don't have to go to the hospital. And when they go to the hospital, they are there for only 10 days, not for the 20 days that is um, the most part of Brazilians that have go to the hospital. We have lost one man. So it's really sad for us because Jorge, he was a black man. Uh, he was six to seven uh, with a lot of health problems. And besides, we are really sad because of him. And it's something very good knowing that um, 
400 people are alive. And uh, so it, it shows that uh, the work is, is really effective in this scenario that we have more than 150,000 people were killed in Brazil by COVID and by this government, no? Because we don't have a plan, a national plan for health and care. So when we percept that at Pineafro, we said we are not a healthcare organization, but we cannot watch people dying. We have to do something. We have to learn. We have to be with professionals and we have to take care of ourselves for ourselves, no? And uh, and it's good now to see that it's working. Wow, that sounds like such a great initiative. It's really an example of resilience. And like others we've seen in other episodes, there's surely a connection between this and the colonial legacy, right? Yeah, she says that in Brazil, everyone has already lost someone close. And even so, people are back on the streets, living their lives as if nothing was happening. Now, we're going through a second wave that is also considered just a continuation of the initial wave. But there's an important point to it. The deaths that we're seeing, they are not distributed evenly among the population. And that has a strong connection to a racist legacy that dates back to the colonial times and continues until today. Our lives are nothing. Because um, it's not the same for rich people, for white people, and for poor people and black people in Brazil. We don't have uh, lots of people dying in these pandemics uh, in the rich neighborhoods. These people that uh, is really sick and who dies are poor and black people. And it's terrible that it seems it's okay. It's okay. For rich, there's no problem that poor people are dying. And for black people, for poor people, it's like, okay, I have nothing to do. So I will um, live my life. And if I have to die, oh, it's a pity, but it's okay. Wow, this is really terrible. Because it has a lot to do with our political moment and with our history. So in a country that we have almost 400 years of slavery, that black people were killed all time in front of everyone and it was okay, now... Only 130 years after abolition of slavery, it's like the same. It's the same. So our bodies are made for exploration and for death. The economical uh, elite here in Brazil, it's the same since abolition. Brazilian state have death for black people since abolition. One black man is killed each 23 minutes in Brazil. And now this number is growing. It's like we have a social 
acceptation of that. It's okay. We sleep and wake up every day knowing that police kill black men every day, 63 in a day, and it's okay. We have a lot of people in jail. And who is in jail? Black people, black men and black women. And everybody knows that. It's in our history. Our bodies are for being killed. Another important point is that a uh, reference that Bianca mentions in her interview, Sueli Carneiro, she's a black scholar. She writes about biopolitics and necropolitics. And she produced some data that illustrates how black people have been systematically killed since the time of slavery, either actively by law enforcement, like we saw in this case of Beto Freitas, but also indirectly by a lack of care and investment in public policies. So public policies are mainly targeted at black populations because they are the most socially vulnerable. And that, too, has been normalized. And another thing that Sueli Canedo writes is that they uh, let us die. So if they don't kill, they let die. So black women don't have um, assistance in the hospital. Uh, black women uh, mortality when um, they go to have a baby, it's like very high in Brazil. Feminicide, when men kill women because they are women. Our politics protects white women. So in 10 years, the number of feminicide um, go down like 9.8% for white women. So they are being killed less. And it's really amazing. So the political perspective, the, it's effective. But for black women, it grew up 54%. So, of course, the state is not protecting black women. They are letting us die. And we can see this. The economical decisions is to not put money in the public services. So we have no money in education, no money in public health care, no money in, in, for, for people in general. So in different ways, they are killing us. But the banks... The big enterprises, they have money. They have as much public money as they need, with no limits. And the discourse is that they give jobs and they are doing good things for Brazil in general. It's like, um, it's normal. Our life is, is nothing. And it it has a lot um, to, to connect with our colonial past because the black bodies have to be killed for the white ones live well. 
It's our history. Poor people have to die for rich people living well. Here in Brazil and in the rich countries where we put our money today, our gold in the past. So it's not money for being here in Brazil. No, it's for putting where there, there are good human beings, where it's white people, um, people who deserve to live. So it's like our bodies are here to serve white and rich people. Or we can die. Wow, this is such an important reflection. It, it really relates to other contexts we've learned about in previous episodes, like the idea that the Navajo people were made to be the perfect victim for this virus due to their historical dispossession. In Brazil, it seems to be the case for Black people as well due to slavery. Yeah, and how um, that's not acknowledged and reparated like with the Navajo. In Brazil, even the presidency affirmed recently that there isn't racism in the country. And as an answer to that, uh, the Black Coalition of Rights, uh, that is also another organization Bianca is a part of, different Black movements in Brazil, they came together in order to organize themselves and strengthen their work to fight for rights and, and fight against positions like that of the current government. I'm interested to hear more about the connection she sees between the issues we've just discussed and narratives. So the whole structure that we're just discussing is powered by narratives. If you take the news, for example, if a crime story is about a white man, the narrative is that he made a mistake. But if the crime story is about a black man, there's no question that he's a criminal through and through. There's no benefit of the doubt. So this space of narratives is where Bianca and other journalists are working to promote some change. I have a book called When I Discovered Myself as Black. I wrote small stories in this book. I don't uh, talk uh, about racism in an analytical way, um, given that, uh, no. I put only small stories that almost always people say that's no racism. It's another thing. But I tried to write in a way that people don't read the word racism, but they feel it's racism. So it makes me very, very happy because I receive messages of adolescents, young people or teachers from all around Brazil, not only black people, but also white people that say, oh, thank you very much. I could not understand. But when I read the stories, I could understand because I could feel. So this for me is really something that says, okay, it, it works. It's not a lot. It's just one piece of something really big and terrible. But you have to do that because someone can feel what racism is. And white people have the opportunity of saying, I don't want to contribute with this. 
So Brazil is a racist country that benefits all white people, but not all white people want this. And it's good to talk when people can feel because they care when they feel. Only the rational perspective, and it's not enough, I think. So not only in the book, but also when I write for magazines or for a newspaper or uh, for websites, I try to tell people stories because I think that with this kind of narrative with this kind of story they can understand we are human beings too we are not only the others that they have to be afraid of that our lives it's nothing when they know our history our small stories they can feel we are human So currently, Bianca writes for different news outlets in Brazil, some of great influence. But even so, when talking about the daily deaths, the grassroots work of real living people that's going on right now, that UNEAF is organizing and, and, and putting together, she has a really low response from her public, really low engagement, especially in the COVID coverage. So if we think about it, it's the idea of race as well as the demonization of black people as products and structural elements of colonial modernity. Black narratives and bodies have been bound to an invisible narrative space. Their deaths don't draw attention, as Bianca has said. Yeah, I agree. People critique the, the president a lot, his harmful measures. They manifest even in an anti-racist fashion. But even so, the stories about real people who are vulnerable at this moment, who are dying, those stories don't get as, as many likes and shares. And, and that lack of engagement, especially on COVID, is something she's currently trying to understand. We are really trying to put our narrative, our perspective in public space. So we made um, a web series of our healthcare project. So we have interviewed people from different communities. We have interviewed the popular agents of health the doctors that, that work with us, um, the activists of UNEAFRO. We have really beautiful images of the communities and it's really a very beautiful work. But I really don't know why these have no visibility. And a lot of different things that we communicate have visibility here. So we cannot understand why when we are in the ground, when we are in the streets, when we are so next to the people, it doesn't interest. When I write that black women have to be heard, people say, okay, it's fantastic. 
when I say that in our history, black voices were silenced, people say, okay, this is amazing, fantastic. But when I write about Jorge, this black man that were killed by the negligence of our healthcare system, people don't read that. Why? It's great to have that perspective from Brazil, but again, colonialism can present itself in many different ways. So I'd love to take us to another context to see another example of what that can look like. Let's move now to Liberia. So we talked to Alpha Dafe Senpeni. He's a multimedia journalist with over 15 years of experience in mainstream journalism and development communications. He's the executive director and editor of the Local Voices Liberia Media Network. So this network came as a means of responding to the communication information needs. When Ebola struck Liberia, everybody was in disarray. We knew nothing about reporting on health issues. The government knew nothing about public health emergencies. We just came from war. Our entire health system was in tatters. There was craziness in the community. Everybody was like, you know, misinformation, conspiracy theories, fake news. Things were just giving everybody Myself as a journalist, it was difficult to comprehend the plethora of problems we had on hand. It was crazy. But then we formed ourselves, we started having this health training. I mean, it was organized by Internews. Internews is a US-based international NGO. So with this certain months of training on health issues and how to report on health emergencies and all that. When we're done with that, we said, no, we cannot just come to this training and leave without doing something about it. Then we came from different parts of the country. Let's form ourselves into a network so that we can all report on a single platform that would tend to help our communities understand the public health emergencies. So we formed this group, 2015. The network has been growing. We have our own website. We've got our social media platforms. We have over 23 community radio stations that are part of the network. I mean, we distribute these contents so that it is played in different parts of the country on different radio stations so that different communities can have a sense of a specific message that we want to go across. We'll do some sampling of views. We'll get these views. We use these views. We do research. We talk to local experts. We localize it. We get the response. We give it back to the community. So we're basically now involved with identifying the information needs of the community. So the Local Voices Liberia Media Network started with the Ebola crisis, and it's now very active during the COVID pandemic. The main issue Alpha identifies in COVID media coverage in Liberia is that historically, people don't rely much on local news. Instead, international media production is valued. His work is to deliver strong, well-made local news. That way, he presents an alternative to international news that is not only produced locally, but is also focused on the communities, taking their perspectives and needs into account, which is much more relevant to tackle local issues. There have always been a serious problem in Liberia when it comes to messaging. Where does these messages come from? That has been the problem. If you check it out, the messages that come often from foreign media and international sources, they always present a kind of believability context to the public because the public sometimes don't want to trust 
local sources because some of these sources they are conflicted or they are trying to work for the government or they are presenting an argument that is that is not realistic so people always turn to look at foreign news sources as a means of validating whatever information they are relying upon foreign sources have often have this huge influence the influence is just massive it's, it's, it's often improbable to, to circumvent their influence. Since we had a Ebola outbreak, it has changed the dynamics a little bit as to how people see local sources and how local journalists, uh, local organizations are working to respond to what are, is the information needs of the community. They have changed the narrative a little bit because they've been able to generate Contents generate views, create, if you like, hands-on approach that have helped to, to, to deal with these problems. And now that they have a better structure, their local media network can produce information that directly addresses the needs of the communities. According to Alpha, the biggest problem they face nowadays during the crisis is the spread of misinformation and fake news. It's huge, and it's really troublesome when it comes to COVID. So they are focused on using their local perspectives to fight that. You have that misinformation going around. So if a person relies on a foreign news source, and some of these foreign news sources have, have also been lifting some, some fake news and misinformation as well. So it, it confuses unsophisticated countries like ours because you have over 60% of the population illiterate. So the ability to independent analysis of news content is pretty much difficult. Now, foreign news and how these news are cultivated and how they are intended to make influence on the local community are considered that colonialism from an information perspective. So how have we been able to mitigate that problem? You want to engage the community, deeply rooted community, track some of their perceptions, the rumors, where these rumors are coming from, why they are there, why they will not go away, and then, you need to find the appropriate localized responses. That's what we do here when it comes to the, because there's two ways to approach COVID. You must do social behavior change. You must merge that with effective communication. We have to, first of all, identify the information needs of our community. Say, for example, if there's this rumor or this fake news circulating in the community, we tend to establish that this is a problem. We, we carry on some view sampling, we do what we call rumor tracking. We tend to determine which one of these rumors is actually gaining foothold. And then we, we try to do some research. Research by going to these very international sources and get to read what they have there. And then we take this information and then we look, we look for local experts now. Here's the benefit of having local experts. He or she lives with the community. He knows the community problem. He understands or she understands the context of the community. So if you try to explain, say, for example, antivirus testing for COVID-19, that local expert who has an understanding of the community, unlike a foreigner, maybe somebody from from, from Oxford University or Yale or from, uh, 
the Johns Hopkins University with a lot of theoretical experience, with a lot of practical experience, but from a different context, comes to Liberia, he or she would do it, but not as efficient as the local expert who has bits and pieces of everything, pieces of the community sense, piece of information from the theoretical background, from the science aspect, he inculcates or she inculcates everything and know exactly how the public will understand this complex science idea. And then they explain it to us, explain it to us, broke it down in small, in simple library English. It's a, you know, like saying um, colloquial, simple library English that everybody in the country understands, put it into articles, and then we produce the responses and share it with community radio stations across the country. Community radio stations are at the heart of Liberia's, I mean, information sector. Very, very important. You cannot survive in Liberia without, I mean, if you do not rely on the community radio stations, they are at the heart of everything. So that's what we do. We get this information from the complex science perspective, take it to a local expert who has huge understanding of the both words. He breaks it down, he explains it, develop it into content and redistribute it to our communities. That is through the community radio stations, the local newspapers and some of the social media platforms. That's what we've been doing, providing these uh, I mean, responses to romance and fake news as it relates to COVID-19, using, I mean, multiple media contents and, and, and diversifying it in a way that it helps the, the ordinary man who does not understand, you know, standard English to understand it and not just understanding it, but change his or her behavior as it relates to what needs to be done to get rid of COVID. So I think it's reached to the point that we cannot post foreign information, foreign sources, foreign experts, colonial thoughts about how public health should work, but it has reached the stage that contextualizing, localizing conventional ideas is the best way when it comes to responding to public health emergencies. And that's the new narrative. That's really very interesting work. When we're talking about fake news, tracking can be really challenging and addressing it can also be very challenging. It seems like a decolonial way of thinking about media production. Yeah, definitely. And it counters that white, foreign, Western days we talked about earlier. In Liberia, there was a civil war that ended in 2003, followed by an Ebola outbreak in 2014 and 2015. Very critical times for the country. The international news didn't spare words to describe how terrible it was. Now, because of the way they coped with Ebola, Liberia is much better prepared to cope with COVID-19. However, that's not talked about in the news. So there's a way of looking at low-income countries as places where only bad things happen. If you reinforce the idea that only bad things happen in those low-income countries, it's like they're never capable of doing anything good or forward-thinking. That is a narrative, a story that is told over and over and over again, and it becomes a fact in people's minds. I think, I think the onus is upon the foreign media to report the truth and to... I mean, we, I've, I've followed some very positive stories about other West African countries that have been doing pretty well. But I've not seen the international media projected Liberia gains in a way I expect it to be. We've made some mis mistakes, but I think 
uh, generally or reasonably, there has been some very good efforts. So I've not seen, you know, a kind of a success story in a very colorful way, a front page story on international media that presents Liberia gains like, yes, this is something that deserves some applause. No, I've not seen that. I think, I think yes, maybe the chair's trying to review it and see which country has done better, which hasn't. But like how coverage was given to Liberia during the Ebola outbreak when we had dead bodies on the streets, when we had a complete broken down, confused health sector. I think we've done we've done a little bit of improvements. We've, we've learned our lessons. We've, we've made some inroads as it relates to relates to how to respond to this epidemic. So I think what we've learned from Ebola and how we've been able to deal with, 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 with the COVID pandemic is a story. It's a story worth telling to present, to present rather, to present a picture of how people learn from their mistakes and how countries learn from their past. And how do they use their experience from a dreadful time to, to curbing or, or, or averting horrendous problem like, like the COVID-19. I, I think I think there's a story worth telling, but I don't know whether it will be told, but we are trying to tell it from our local uncle. We are trying to tell it for our communities to know that we can do our own thing. We can solve our own problems. Yes, we need the foreign partners because they have the resources. They have got some expertise, but we have the local expertise and we can blend it and we can do better. So it's not just about somebody doing a big PR piece in the New York Times because the government wants to project herself as a positive government that has done so much well. It's about telling the human interest, the, human, the people kind of story. I call it the people-centric story where it presents the real facts. Local perspective is key. You have to tell a story, even from a little angle. What do small countries are doing? Can these small countries be helped to improve their approach? And their mechanism as it relates to how they communicate to the community and how they move, how they respond to their own virus, these are things that should be talked about and told by the international media. So this is a clear example of, you know, going back to all of our conversations since episode one, um, how colonialism is still present, still determining the idea, uh, in this case, the idea that people have about uh, the countries that were colonized. Exactly. And if we're not looking for other sources from people like Alpha and Bianca, who are writing from a different perspective, telling a different side of the story, we might internalize those colonial understandings of people and countries. Rich countries as the saviors and poor countries as the devastated in need of saving. In that sense, I think we could take some time now to just, you know, step back from that colonial perspective and counter it by looking at some uh, different stories, some stories that are being told from a different perspective. Listen to a snippet of an NPR piece by Jason Bobian. Rwanda is listed by the World Bank as a low-income country. And yet, when it comes to COVID-19, it has accomplished what even some of the richest countries in the world have failed to do. And it's done it by making smart use of its scarce resources and responding aggressively to the virus. So aggressively that if you happen to be going down the street in the capital city, Kigali, there's a chance that you might randomly get tested for the coronavirus. Since March, this country of 13 million people has recorded just over 1,200 cases. The state of Ohio, with a similar sized population, has recently been reporting that same number of cases every day. 
This is but one example of how low-income countries have been showing good leadership, efficiency, and experience when dealing with the pandemic. There's more information to this story, and of course, Rwanda is not an isolated case. You can hear the whole news by Jason Bobian and read other news we've separated for you in the description of this podcast. Throughout this series, we learned so much and dived into so much complexity. Colonialism is not an easy legacy. On the contrary, it's very hard to deal with. It has led to dire inequality and poor life conditions for so many. There are things that we see and deal with on a daily basis as a result of colonialism. To focus on these great resistance initiatives in our final episode has been really uplifting. What Bianca is doing in Brazil, what Alf is doing in Liberia, it's pretty amazing and important work. And on that note, I wanted to end with a final contribution from each of them. In the end of the interview, we asked them to tell us from their perspective, what is the power of writing and valuing one, one's own narrative? They gave us pretty inspiring answers, so I'd like to end with that today. The power of writing. Power is overwhelming. When you tell a story, when you, when you carve your own narrative about a problem from a human interest point of view, You're telling a story because you want to solve a particular problem that probably has an effect on you or on your community or on people you know. When I write human interest stories, I write it because I want to tell a story, not because I'm trying to attract donor funding or I'm trying to present the image that uh, I'm a lover of democracy and I'm a big fan of, of, of helping poor countries. No. You want to tell the story because you want that story to make an impact. It's about how you influence the people to change their, to change their thoughts, their behavior. How do you, the local journalist, writes the story from a local perspective, targeting a specific audience or readership with a sense of helping them understand this core problem? And that's what I do. That's what I think local narratives or you know reshaping these narratives this is what it does writing is not for today it's slow people read they can feel they can think but they don't act immediately the time of writing is a different time of the political action, of the activism that for is, is for today. So today I will do this and this and this for changing this reality now. Writing is not about this. I will write, someone will read, and will feel, will think, and in 10 years, this person will do something that will be different in 100 years. Writing is the power for changing future. And on that inspiring note, we end our episode and series on colonialism and COVID-19. We hope you've enjoyed this episode as well as the entire series. If you haven't heard previous episodes, they're available however you get your podcasts. I'd like to thank Lola and Zahir for this amazing partnership, uh, as well as all of our amazing guests throughout the three episodes who generously share their experiences and knowledge 
with us. It's been really great. And we know that there is much more to be discussed on this topic. This is just our tiny contribution. I hope uh, this material can be used to start and deepen conversations in different places. So if you're experiencing that somehow, feel free to connect with us over Instagram, Facebook or Twitter to share your opinion or experience. We are at AC4Columbia for in a numeral form. So AC number four Columbia. And you can find this in Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Don't forget to also check out the list of links on this episode description to find more about Bianca's and Alpha's work, and if you can, help them with your support. The Colonialism and COVID-19 series is brought to you by Conversations from the Leading Edge, in partnership with Zahara Magnet and Lola Adewumi. Conversations from the Leading Edge is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict and Complexity at the Earth Institute, Columbia University. Follow AC4 on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at AC4Columbia to get constant updates on issues around sustainability, peace, and conflict. I am Marika Zelat, the producer of this podcast. Rachel Kirk is our communications supervisor. The music for this podcast was written and composed by Kevin Johnston. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. This episode used clips and headlines from NPR, MIT, Africa is a Country, The New York Times, The New York Post, BBC, CNN Interview, Sky News, and Deutsche Welle. That's all for today's show. See you next time. Bye.